Fact by way of fiction can bring us closer to the truth itself. Yep, that's a quote from the new series of The Right Stuff. So we're going to delve in and review that new series about the Mercury 7 and have a brief look at how NASA actually started. More memes, please. Send them over to at Space and Things 1 on Twitter or tag us at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Yep, we love the memes. But right now, we hope that you just enjoy Episode 7 of the Space and Things Podcast. You're listening to the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode seven of our podcast. Hey, Emily, I'm not sure if you've noticed on our Zoom call, but I'm wearing a new t-shirt today. All right. Yep. That's one of our uh, Space and Things t-shirts. It looks it looks fantastic. Yeah, it feels nice. So, uh, it feels pretty good. Yours is in the post. Don't worry. <laughs> awesome. I'm looking forward to getting mine and uh, wearing mine and showing it off on social media. And um, I, I want to say you can get those t-shirts. You can. Uh, at our store on um, Space and Things. I think it's spaceandthingspodcast.com. You can indeed. There's also some sweat tops. Uh, a few limited uh, white hoodies are available on there as well. So, um, But if you join our Patreon, of course, you get one of these t-shirts as well, which is always yes. always good. But yeah, I thought I'd wear it. I, it. They literally arrived today. I was wearing my Mercury 7 t-shirt. I thought that was appropriate. But when these arrived, I was like, no, I've got to put my uniform on. So, uh, yes, alas, it looks awesome. It yeah. looks awesome. I'm really it's pleased cool. with it. We have our own, we have our own shirts. I know. That's so it, cool. It kind of feels more official now that we, now we've got a t-shirt. It feels like this has finally begun. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we got our, we are, we got our own shirts. Yep. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Okay. So, so how have you been this week? Uh, I'm doing okay. I've been in the United States. We're getting closer to election day. So, uh, yeah, uh, I've really just been avoiding. I, I hate to say it, I've been avoiding social media just because lately it's just so crazy. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it, we we had yeah. this, we had the same. We had a few elections in a row in, in this country over the last few years, and it, it's the only way to stay sane is actually to turn it all off. Uh, yeah, and it, it's such a shame that that's how it's supposed to be. Well, that's how it's turned out. You know, the internet was supposed to be this great melting pot. We could share ideas and, and be civil to each other. But no, apparently not. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I don't blame exactly. you for turning it all off. Yeah. So uh, that's I've kind of just been uh, living in glorious social media isolation kind of for the last <laughs> few days. I hate to say it. It's been wonderful. I've been the happiest <laughs> I've been in a very long time. Yeah. Not, um, not there's surprised. no drama. Nobody's trying to start a fight, you know. <laughs> uh, gosh, I hate saying that. It's so it's so sad, but that is how it is. So I think, like I said last week, uh, we've always got space. We so. do, we do, <laughs> and I think that's a good chance to uh, to get started. Endeavour Houston, we see a nominal Miko Ohms one not required. Welcome to space. So this week in space. We had a launch. Week seven of this podcast, and we've had yet another company launch a rocket. Uh, this week, it's the turn of Blue Origin, who is the company run by Jeff Bezo of Amazon fame. I never know if I say his name correctly, but that's what I'm going with, Jeff Bezo. Anyway, his New Shepard rocket, or Blue Origin's New Shepard rocket, named after Alan Shepard, had a successful suborbital flight this morning from their base in Texas, with both the rocket and the capsule on top of it landing safely a few miles down the range after the launch. I believe that this is the 12th successful launch of the rocket in a row. I think I may 
I've seen that somewhere. Uh, they also had mm-hmm. some really beautiful drone cameras for the launch. They had one as it as it was going up and one it was coming down. Uh, I've not seen shots like that before. They almost looked CGI, but they weren't. It was amazing. Really beautiful. Um, I, I say uh, I say this morning because we record this on Tuesday for a, for the Thursday release date of our podcast. Um, but there may well have been a launch from Kazakhstan as well, as a Soyuz craft is due to launch uh, three people up to the International Space Station on Wednesday morning. But we will talk more about that next week if it has happened. But literally hot off the press, uh, as of as of us recording this a few hours ago, the Artemis Accords were announced by NASA. Uh, this is literally broken right before we're about to record. Uh, so I'm not 100% on the details, but essentially I believe that NASA are reaching out to other countries to join them in their effort to get to the get to the moon by 2024. And so far, Australia, Canada, Italy, Japan, Luxembourg, the United Arab Emirates and the United Kingdom have signed up, which I am taking as a sign that I'm going to get sent to the moon as an ambassador for my country, assuming this podcast grows big enough so uh i can hope um i i don't think i've missed anything emily but uh do you have anything to add to any of that any any observations your own yeah uh i think it's i think it's notable that russia is not in the artemis accords Mm, or china um, or china so i thought that was notable um i think it's really cool that australia is part of the artemis accords because um I'm not sure. I I, we've I think we've talked about this briefly. I don't know if it made the show or not earlier this uh, uh, in the podcast. But Australia, I won't get into it here because that's a whole episode into itself. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Australia really has its own kind of unique space history, and um, so I think it's really cool that they're part of it and they're going to participate as well. Uh, That's really cool. I I really like the idea of that. yeah, that um, new Shepard launch, I, I did see some of it. I, I was at work during the day, so I saw some of it on like Twitter because I just checked ch- Twitter and the um, the footage is, was like mind-blowing. I, know. Uh, I, I, I hate to admit, <laughs> I went to Blue Origin's website because um, I always drive past, when I go to Kennedy Space Center, I haven't gone in a while because of the pandemic. It's right there, isn't it? The big They've got that big warehouse yes. right as you go in. Yeah, it's the big like glass looking mm. building. It's it's this very modern looking large building across from the visitor center. Whenever I go to that area like Brevard, my favorite thing is like I'll go to Zarella's and then drive like the Merritt Island way back to like Titusville cuz I usually stay somewhere in Titusville just because yeah. it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. And um I love driving past that building at night and just kind of stopping like and looking now, they're gonna have security guards and stuff. Probably like, where's that chick at? But um, <laughs> I love looking at that building because it's so beautiful and like modern and really just. They have a rocket in the lobby, and I'm like, I just wanted like look inside. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's really cool. I did go to their website today, and they have um, they're actually talking in a few flights. I, I don't know how um, realistic. This will be, I know today they had a, a few payloads on the vehicle and they uh, were testing technology for a, like lunar lander technology. Yeah, I saw them. Yeah, I saw them say that. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool, but they're also talking in a few flights. Um, and like I said, I don't know what really the timeline of this is going to be or if that'll happen. 
Um, I'm hoping it'll happen that they'll have passengers on the missions. Yeah, they, they spoke about that a lot in the commentary. I will, I will put the, uh, a link to the video in the show notes. But they talked about that a lot in the commentary of the of the launch. That she, every at every point they were like, at this point, if you were on board, you would feel this. So, uh, yeah, they are gearing up and certainly setting the scene to have passengers on their on their suborbital flights. I mean, they're only short flights, aren't they? It was like 13 minutes or something less yeah. less than that. But 11 minutes, I think. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. You, you get a taste. Exactly. Yeah, I, I went to their website and I looked at like you know their be an astronaut section and you know it has these uh, really beautiful you know windows in this in the uh, in the crew vehicle and um, I, I was uh, so yeah I did something stupid and uh, I actually signed up to be an astronaut but you have to pay money obviously and I don't have anywhere I'm sure. <laughs> I'll get bounced. I'm sure they'll see my name and be like, "Look, you can't come here. You don't. You have like a, you have like a few like five dollars. You don't have no money. You can't fly on our vehicle." But um, I did sign up just because I in the uh <laughs> extremely unlikely event that I come into like millions of dollars, thousands and thousands of dollars to do this, I would do it in a heartbeat. So the, the, it, I did sign up. Maybe they'll maybe they'll take a podcast as currency. Who knows? Yeah, maybe exposure. Exactly. <laughs> I'll give you guys exposure. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on that. But yeah, that would be I know, amazing. I hate, the, I hate that word because I get that all the time. Hey, can you write this for exposure? We just need like 30,000 words. And I'm like, are you? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I'll do it. I'll do it for them. If You know, I'll give Blue Origin some exposure. Uh, yeah. They're probably going to block me on every social media after hearing that. They're like, see ya. All right. <laughs> if I've got this right, the new Shepard is the their suborbital yes rocket, and then they've got the new Glenn. Did I miss that? Because this is I'm thinking about years ago when I saw these announcements. New Glenn is the one that's going to get into orbit. I don't know if it's done any any missions yet, but I remember them talking about that years ago. Yes, um, according to the ever reliable Wikipedia, fantastic. <laughs> uh, um, I don't know how accurate this is or when this was updated, so uh, I'm giving this information out with a big caveat. <laughs> but um, I just looked this up briefly on Google. Um, the New Glenn is a heavy lift orbital launch vehicle. Uh, Blue uh, Blue Origins is developing it. And um, according to Wikipedia, now once again, you know, take it with a grain of salt. I don't know how accurate this is. Um, it's first pl- flight is planned for 2021, which is not long from now. We shall see. So we'll see. We shall see. <laughs> I, I do like the, the the historic nod, though, the suborbital flight being Shepard and the orbital one being Glenn. I, I do like that nod. That's really cool. I like it. It, it took me a little bit to figure that out because I'm like, new. oh, I get what they're doing. I think that's really cool. I think yeah, it's yeah. very sweet. Yeah, yeah, especially for people like us who who like the history of it all. Um, also, Emily, uh, I've I've won a bet with anyone who didn't take me up on the offer of the bet because the uh, Crew Dragon launch has been has been delayed. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, I did not get to. Yeah, uh, it was not my fault. It's not this your time. fault. Definitely not your fault this time. But they're saying mid November now. I don't think they even made it to the pad, so I was not yeah. able to ruin this one for anybody. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but I guess the previous ones that I ruined is the reason why they're pushing this one. Yeah, back, they just so. want to they just want to double check why that went wrong and uh, or, or why they had that scrub, which which is right and good and uh, yes, happy with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're good with that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so so that I believe covers what has happened so far this week in space. Uh, ne- next week, um, assuming the 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 launch from Kazakhstan goes well. 
next week, I think we should have a brief look at, at, at the switchover on the ISS um, because you've got a change of crew going on over the next few weeks, and they, they call them expeditions. So Expedition 63 ends, and Expedition 64 will start. So maybe we'll have a little look back at Expedition 63 and what they've achieved and uh, and have a look at what they're trying to do with Expedition 64. Expedition's a really hard word to say a lot in a short space of time. Uh, but yeah, we'll talk about that more next week. Seven here, fuel is go, 4G, 5.5 cabin, oxygen go, all systems are go. Also this week, The Right Stuff has premiered on National Geographic, with the first two episodes being available to those who have Disney+. Plus. Unfortunately, uh, I hate to admit this, I don't have Disney Plus yet, so I have not been able to catch them yet. But I'm hoping if there's anybody out there who has a access, <laughs> who, who can spare a gal a password, uh, just hit me up. Um, yeah. So um, I know Dave. <laughs> I know Dave. Um, I know you watched it. Uh, what were your thoughts? There's only two episodes up at the moment. I believe there's eight episodes going to be of the series. I, I've gathered that by looking at IMDb. Um, but I really liked it. I've watched them both twice so far um, because I I wanted to see if I could pick up on some extra stuff the second time, and I did. The my, the reason I had to do it is the first time, I'll be brutally honest, I found it hard to figure out who was who because the the actor who plays Alan Shepard, uh, Jake McDornan, Jake McDorman, looks a bit like real-life Scott Carpenter. So <laughs> that's a bit confusing if you really know okay. these these guys. So um, essentially, the, 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 I really like it. I, I, I have other comments, but before we go on, Emily, can you just give us some background on what The Right Stuff is and who it's about? I'll just start at the beginning. The Right Stuff was a book uh, published uh, in 1979, and it was uh, authored by Tom Wolfe, who was a pretty famous uh, American uh, writer. He's He did uh, fiction and nonfiction uh, books and I believe the book was based on uh, I want to say a couple of stories he did for Rolling Stone magazine called the Post Orbital Remorse, uh, which was basically about you know it was in the stories about you know kind of the wake of the space program after you know Apollo had ended and everything like that. So anyway, the right stuff comes out in 1979. My relationship with this book is sort of like the relationship somebody would have with like a bad friend. Um, let me explain what I mean by this. It's really entertaining. It's brilliantly written. It's uh, it's not bad, but <laughs> there are some um, issues with it. And let me explain what I mean. Um, the the good parts about the book is uh, Tom Wolfe is an amazing writer. He's very vivid. Uh, he definitely does capture the mood of the late 50s, or not even the late 50s, the late 40s to um, the early 1960s, he definitely captures, you know, that whole, you know, kind of that Edwards, you know, in the desert flying, you know, these high powered planes. Um, he, he really does capture the mood and kind of the flavor of that time. So that's really a plus of the book. And I, like I said, he's a really beautiful wordsmith. Um, the things that are kind of cons about the right stuff is... I don't know. I don't want to put this too negatively because I don't think it's a bad book. It uh, has contributed to untrue myths about certain people. Uh, mainly, uh, I, I don't want to spoil it too much. Mainly, Carpenter, Scott Carpenter, and Gus Grissom. And um, you can kind of tell when you're reading it the the sources he relied on the most. 
you know, uh, he I think he re- he relied on some people who may have had stories that were kind of stretched a bit. And you can sort of tell that. Yeah. But overall, I mean, it is I do think people should read it Um, It to give some context about the right stuff. It uh, it came out and uh, I forgot what month it came out, but it did come out in 1979, as I said. And uh, that was kind of a bad year. Not as bad as 2020. <laughs> but it was kind of, it wasn't as bad as 2020. There was no pandemic as far as I'm aware, but uh, there was a lot of difficult stuff going on in America that year. For example, um, you know, Three Mile Island happened. The uh, Iran hostage situation happened. Skylab came crashing back to Earth. Um, <laughs> the, the West. The U- yeah. <laughs> the, right. Really, the U.S. space program at that time was kind of considered to be like, kind of going away like it really did not have a great reputation it was kind of perceived as okay we landed on the moon and we're not doing anything anymore yeah because the shuttle hadn't flown yet so um that book came out and it it really i think it captured people's imaginations and it became kind of an icon because it really it, it it people were very nostalgic already about the time you know it covered you know that you know that early 60s and you know that you know, we're going to space for the first time. So I think that's kind of why it became such a big part of the zeitgeist at the time, because that era, that, that year was kind of bleak. Um, and uh, about the movie, The Right Stuff, that came out in 1983. And it's and it stars Ed Harris as John Glenn. And it uh, I think um, Sam Shepard, I think that's who was uh, Chuck Yeager in the film. Again, it's not a bad movie. It's really entertaining. I actually like it. Uh, it's beautifully filmed. It really does capture the mood and the tone of the time, but there are things that um, I think you can agree with me on this. There are things that are not accurate. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the the big differential straight away with the TV show is they've decided to focus purely on the seven astronauts rather than Chuck Yeager. Whereas the the film, I've not read the book, but you've told me that the book does as well. The, the book and the and the, yeah. and the original film have. Chuck Yeager's all over it. So Chuck Yeager was the first, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he he flew the Bell X-1 uh, plane, Glorious yeah. Glennis, first first person to break the sound barrier in an aeroplane. Yes. Um, so he's, he's a big deal in, in over in Edwards doing all the, the test pilot stuff. And and it, the, the film tries to, to, to show the conflict between those who carried on test piloting and those who went into the astronaut corps and, and, and how yeah. that, how they looked at each other. You're getting none of that in the TV show, not so far anyway, and it doesn't look like they're going to go that way. They just want to focus on, here's the story of, of these seven astronauts. Yeah. I, I'm theorizing why they probably, and like I said, I have not watched the show yet, so um, I people are probably going to say, like, how can you speculate when you haven't watched it? But, I'm thinking the reason why they focus on the Mercury 7 only is probably because um, that's such a big story in itself. It, it kind of makes the story smaller because um, the right stuff, the movie, is pretty epic. I want to say it's like a three-hour long film, uh, and it, it's kind of a long watch. And, it you know, it it really tries to integrate the story of Jaeger. It covers a lot that's in the book. Yeah. Um, the only thing it doesn't cover that's in the book, and I don't know if they'll cover it uh in the show i'm kind of hoping they do because i want to see what happens one of the main characters in the book is pete comrade and he is not in the movie so i'm kind of hoping that he'll show up in the show at least near the end or something like that that would be fun yeah that, yeah 
you know, well, Pete's a real, real colourful character, so that, that's, let's hope so. Um, you, you sent me a wonderful article about the, uh, a review of the book by Michael Collins this week, which yeah. we, will, we will post within uh, the description of, of this po- podcast, because uh, Mike Collins had some wonderful things to say about it. And not so nice things to say about it, but it was a really classic Mike Collins uh, article that he wrote for the Washington Post, I believe, as the book came out in yes. '79, uh, in- including mentioning some of those Pete Conrad stories. Uh, and I think I think my favourite part of that was uh, P- Pete Conrad within the book was was uh, apparently when he first signed up to NASA, they, the, the the scientist said or the doctor said that he wouldn't be able to, he wasn't the personality type to do a long uh, long duration flight. And of yeah. course, course, he did an eight-day mission in a Gemini capsule with Gordo Cooper, and uh, and Mike Collins went. And I wouldn't say that Gordo is the person I'd want to spend eight days with. <laughs> and it was just like so yes. blunt. Matt, like, is so much. If you've read Carry in the Fire, then you know that's what he does. He just says it as he sees it and uh, doesn't hold back. And it's a it's a classic Michael Collins quote. That one. Yeah. Everybody should read that. It's pretty funny. Um, I do agree with a lot of points he makes in that article about the book. I, another criticism that can be made about that book is is it is um, too adulatory of some people. And at the same time, it kind of drags other people down, you know, for really no reason. But it's not, like I said, it is it is enjoyable. I think people should read it, but I, I take hope it people... A, take it with a pinch. Yeah, I I think it should be classified almost as like creative nonfiction. And and I and I feel like that's what this TV show and the film also do. Uh we just had a visitor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was bandit. <laughs> we had a feline visitor to the podcast for the first time, so uh, that was new. <laughs> but but yeah, I I feel like that's what this TV show does. And Emily o- opened uh, the very start of this podcast she said the quote uh, fact by the way of fiction can bring us closer to the truth itself and uh, and that happened in episode two of the tv show Loudon wainwright of life magazine as played by josh cook says that to alan shepherd in trying to get alan to to open up to him uh, and to tell him the story that he wanted to tell and i feel like they put that scene in and that quote in almost to justify their existence yes I really love these two episodes. At the same time, as someone who knows a little bit about what happened then, I am taking it all with a pinch of salt. Really simply, they're all too young, too tall, and too broad. Yeah. Even though they've gone to the attention of making sure that, that Deke only has nine fingers, they're too big. And and Wally, the actor playing Wally Shearer, is so much taller than the rest of them, which to me doesn't make any sense. I've seen the guy who plays Wally, and Wally was kind of like a dark, like a small, like, Kind of, I don't know how tall he was. Uh, I used to know all their heights, which is really kind of a creepy. Um, <laughs> but um, I know while I don't know how tall Wally Shira was, but um, I was kind of like the guy playing him looks kind of tall and, and lanky. Kind of, and he looks he looks very fair. Yeah, like light, you know. And uh, Wally was kind of a dark guy, you know, like dark hair, dark, you know, kind of a complexion. So I'm kind of like I don't know. But I mean, I'm willing to, like I said, I haven't seen the show yet, so I'm willing to suspend my belief yeah, for a while. Yeah, exactly. Those, those kind of things I, I can, I, I expect. I mean, as well as that, there's a scene where where um, Jake McDormand as Al Shepard takes his shirt off and his abs are unbelievable. And I cannot believe, <laughs> I just don't believe that Al Shepard ever had a, had a no. stomach like that. Um, especially not when he joined NASA in, in his late 30s or whatever that was. But that they're all minor things. <laughs> Um, the other thing, like this, the scenes with the so far, there's only been a couple, but the scenes with Deke and Gus, 
make them out to be a bit dumb. Uh, and that, well, interesting oh, to see how no. that, that plays out. It's all very monosyllabic. Huh. One words. It's all one words uh, <laughs> conversations. And there, it's funny, and I know they've done it for comic effect, but again, it's like, oh, come on. They're not like that. And the whole thing is very much set up to be Team Shepherd versus Team Glenn. Oh, there's- that's all going on with family strife added into the mix from Gordo Cooper. That's the three oh, elements. Okay. That's that's essentially <laughs> what we have going on. Um, Beautiful. So that, okay. that's the main that, that's the main thrust of, of what is going on. You get the, the 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 drama aspect from what's going on in Gordo's life and the competition right from the off between John Glenn and Alan Shepard and, and 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 setting up their their different approaches to to being an astronaut in that time. Man, I'm sorry to get like off topic. I want to see like them do a like a like a group like a group five the right stuff that would be hysterical like you'd have like the nice guys versus the bad boys or something like they they would have to set it up like you got warden and duke and rusa like setting houses on fire versus like um hey bruce uh giving a shout out to uh bruce mccandless the third uh, Bruce McCandless the second, who's like this nice dude, you know, who's like, I'm not into this, you know, or something. I don't know. Just to add some dramatic tension. And by the way, none of that existed. I'm just making that up. Well, I think they did set stuff. Um, just read Falling to Earth. But still, um, yeah, just something like that. Just like I would I would direct. I would write and direct that show. That would be the greatest show of all time. Uh, the ultimate fan fiction. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'd call it. It had to be. It has to be the something stuff. Yeah. I don't know the, <laughs> the bad stuff. I don't know. But you but know. but but on on the whole, I am I am really enjoying this. I, I the visuals are all great, and, and I'm looking forward to how they develop that. Especially of of I mean, they, they make the redstone rocket look so dramatic, and you know, and, it's, <laughs> and, and impressive when it's only a little small one. But it's it, an itty bitty rocket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, that's that's quite nice. My main, the, my main bone of contention with it isn't anything to do with the Mercury 7. It's to do with NASA and how NASA is portrayed. So NASA, okay, yeah. so NASA is represented by essentially by three people. Uh, <laughs> and, okay. I think we've talked a little bit about this. Yeah. and that, I think it's funny, and, but and, go and, on. Yeah, so they've essentially said that NASA... And its space task group are just three people, and they did everything. And that's Bob Gilruff, Chris Craft, and they had a little lackey, a little boy who would run around after them doing all the donkey work as Glenn Lunny. And obviously, these are all real people that that, that did exist in the world of, of NASA at that time, uh, but they weren't the only three. And it was the three of them that called up all the candidates and all that kind of stuff. And I, I'm pretty sure that none of them were involved in phoning up candidates, but I, I get it. There's. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the space task force had about 45 people in when it was set up. So when you've already got seven main characters and their wives that are all main characters, you need to limit how many characters. Only so many people that, that people who don't know all about this can uh, can get to know. But essentially, Bob Gilruth's running the show with Chris Craft and they've got a little mate called Glyn. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Lovey, <laughs> as they keep referring him to. And and, and that that's making me smile 
a lot, but I get why they're doing it. And, and yeah, that and that's where I am with it. I'm, but I'm really enjoying it. I watched it twice. I watched it. I enjoyed it so much. I wanted to watch it again. And I think that's what's good. It's it's good. I mean, I I do wonder if you're a family member of one of the, one of those seven guys. Whether you'd like it, probably not. But I wonder if they've ever <laughs> liked any portrayals of of them. Uh, yeah. In this context, um, but I like it. It's good fun. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to watching it. Uh, if I can get somebody who has Disney Plus, or, I would love to watch it. Or just wait, <laughs> wait till the eight episodes come out and then get the free trial. <laughs> yeah, that might be it. That might be it. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Capsule is turning around. So, with that in mind, uh, and, and with Blue Origin launching the, the new Shepard rocket this week. All this first seven astronauts, all this stuff coming together, it does feel like a good idea to have a brief look at how NASA got started uh, and those how those first seven astronauts got selected, even though, I mean, serious his, historical books have been written uh, about this stuff. And one of my bones of contention is in documentaries, they normally slim this down. Like they normally say Sputnik got launched and as a result, NASA was set up. In, in truth, there was a year pass between Sputnik yes. launching and the actual date that NASA was set up, although it had been introduced earlier. It was a whole year. So, Emily, do us a favour as a historian. Give us a flavour of how it all started. I'll try to sum it up as best as I can. Like, uh, like you said, there have been whole books written about, you know, the creation of NASA and, um, you know, the circumstances that arose during that time in the 50s. We're going to start... With a couple of things, um, some people chalk up the beginning of the space race to um, Sputnik, and some other historians chalk up the beginning of the space race to the International Geophysical Year, which ran from, I want to say, it ran from 1957 to 58, um, and it was a bunch of different nations, uh, and they got together to basically kind of discuss and come up with like scientific um, activities and some of that uh, encompassed, you know, polar exploration, uh, trying to figure out what the northern lights were, you know, things like that. I know Australia, that was what Australia did. Okay. Uh, don't ask me why I know this because I, I read it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I-, I believe part of the effort was also to um, put satellites into space. Uh, so on October 4th, 1957, we had Sputnik Day. Um, it launched. So after that, you know, obviously that was kind of a call to the United States, like, okay, we, you know, we need to work on getting our own payload in space. According to uh, NASA, following that happening, um, things started happening where people were talking about, okay, we need to have like a a space agency of sorts. And um, at the time, there was a lot of talk, like, are we going to integrate it into a already existing agency? And which one do we, you know, which one do we use? For example, um, you know, do we integrate it into the Atomic Energy uh, Commission, uh, the AEC? Like, you know, what do we do? Yeah. On November 25th, 1957, uh, Senator, then Senator, he became president later, uh, Lyndon Johnson um, basically began uh, hearings on our uh, space and missile activities on in the Preparedness Investigating Subcommittee of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And on February 6, uh, 1958, shortly after, um, there was an establishment of a, a, of a special committee on space and aeronautics. By March 5th of that year, uh, President Eisenhower 
had uh, approved a memorandum, and it basically proposed a civilian space agency that would be built around the already existing NACA, uh, which is not pronounced NACA. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I wish it was. The NACA, I believe, is the uh, National Aeronautics... uh, Gosh, let me see. National Advisory for Committee for Aeronautics, I believe. There you go. Yeah, there you go. I always screwed up for some reason. Yeah. That was an agency that had been around since 1915. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to say one of its like charter members was Orville Wright. So right. it had been around for a long time, and it was dedicated to you know, advances in engineering and aviation. Based out in Langley, Virginia, right? Yep, based in Langley. So you are correct. So basically what happened was, um, you know, they kind of, you know, went back and forth, like, what should we name this, you know, agency? And they were going to name it the National uh, Aeronautics and Space Agency at the beginning. Um, But um, that was kind of deemed too, you know, small. They wanted something that had kind of a majesty to it. So it became what we know as the administration and had a administrator. So um, in spring 1958, uh, uh, this became legislation, and uh, the National Aeronautics and Space Act was passed into law, uh, was signed into law on July 29, uh, 29th, 1958. According to NASA, it was assumed that uh, Dryden, who had been, I think, the head of the NACA, would be the administrator, but it actually became T. Keith Glennon. Um, he became the first administrator. So Keith Glennon. That's a name you don't hear that often. But alas, he was the first administrator of NASA, uh, which was formed eventually on the 1st October 1959. But going back to the, the National Aeronautics and Space Act, uh, there were eight objectives. Yes. As part of these eight, one thing was going to be we need to get humans up. So on day six of NASA's operation... The space task force, as is as is put in the, in the right stuff, was was formed with Bob Gilruth as Bob Gilruth in charge. Yes, with Charles Donlan as the assistant director, and that was going to manage what what was going to become Project Mercury, which was was named very shortly afterwards. And I believe that's it was within that where they came up with with trying to find yeah. the seven. And and as I kind of mentioned yeah. earlier, uh, there were there were forty five people. Uh, on the task force, including eight secretaries and computers, uh, which one, according to uh, <laughs> according to the right stuff, was Glenn Lunley. Um, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, that's 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 where it started from. So um, of course, then they had to find these astronauts. I know that when they they had, I think a hundred odd candidates, and they had to whittle it down. And and they went to test pilots. They were gonna choose acrobats at one point. There was talk about them using acrobats yeah. and jockeys and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> they decided on test pilots. They put a list together and they yeah. sent they sent thirty six to Love the Lovelace Clinic in Albuquerque, where they were probed beyond measure, uh, physically and mentally. Yes, they were checked out. Yeah, they were checked out beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Uh, I want to say also Eisenhower. He was a general during World War II. Yeah. And um, I think he wanted military candidates as well. Yeah, that, that was something's sense. telling me he wants mil- he wanted military candidates. Yeah, and they, they there were requirements uh, for them. You know, obviously they had to have so many flying hours and I I think it was recommended they have a degree. I don't think Carpenter had his degree at the time, but he was um 
he may have he had uh, studied at college i think it was because he had actually he had, he, yeah. he, he tried to go to college or had been at college before he, he joined the military so he had credits he was, or something i believe he was qualified because i mean he was he was a good pilot and he was um he was probably in the best physical shape mm. of any of those guys um with the mercury 7 honestly he's been compared a lot not really in in temperament, he's been compared a lot to German Titov, who was the second Soviet to fly in space. And uh, Titov was really fit. Like, he was very athletic. Mm. That's probably a reason why he was chosen, because he was probably better suited to the space environment. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so they ended up with with seven astronauts. They wanted six, but they couldn't figure out who to cut. Uh, and then they were introduced to the public at a press conference on April the 9th, 1959. Uh, which was hosted by none other than Keith Glennon, or Dr. T. Keith Glennon. Yeah, the administrator. And now I have watched his press conference recently in its entirety. It's really weird because it's it looks so unprofessional. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. look... It's not slick at all. Uh, and they get through it. Um, John Glenn is polished, got funny answers, he's witty. The rest of them are kind of all a little bit like, what the hell is going on? They're pretty much all smoking. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> uh, I think they then had to stop any images of them smoking after that because they were like, you can't, you can't be doing that. I will post a link to the press comments because if you're interested in these seven guys, I think seeing this is important because it's such an important part of understanding that these guys, the, other than John Glenn, they weren't media savvy at all. They didn't really know no. what was about to happen. They knew they were going to be astronauts, obviously, but they didn't know that they were about to become superstars i mean these seven guys were oh yeah they icons were icons for you know they really were and i think that the the next few groups of astronauts at least all knew okay we're going to get thrust into the limelight here our families are going to get thrust into the limelight here and 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 that's something within the right stuff they do address they do ad- address that they weren't prepared for this at all they were not media yeah. trained they had not had any i mean john glenn had done some tv stuff so he was a little bit more savvy about it yeah they just weren't ready for it at all and it's crazy that they were just thrust into this cauldron and asked these questions and you can see how uncomfortable some of the questions are making them they cover this at the start of uh of episode two of the right stuff and um i mean they over dramatize it a little bit with the the john versus al stuff uh, but the real interview is oh, just a wonderful historical document. Yeah. Um, and one of the interesting things about it is that they're all asked about their wives, for example, and uh, and whether they're okay, and whether their wives are okay with with what they're doing. Um, and the answers and the jokes are very much 1959 answers. I, it was a different. I'd go as to say is if, uh, <laughs> if if a few of them were answered today, they would be cancelled already. Yeah. If it happened nowadays, things would have been a lot different. Um, women, uh, like, um, uh, this is kind of a aside here. Um, one of the uh, astronaut wives who recently passed away was uh, Reen Carpenter. And um, she was very active in, you know, the media. Like, she, um, she, was very, she wrote an article. She insisted on writing an article about her husband's flight for Life magazine. Um, she was probably, other than... Um, other than Annie, probably just because Annie was married to John Glenn and he was the big hero and stuff like that. Um, she was probably the most one of the most visible of the astronaut wives because she had, you know, this big blonde hair and, you know, she looked like a bombshell and she looked like, you know, the hot 
I hate to say it, it's so sexist, but she looked like, you know, the hot blonde lady of the time. You know, she was kind of Monroe-esque, you mm. know. But uh, she was very bright, though. Um, she was she was very talented in and of herself. Um, and she, like I said, she did uh, write for, I know she wrote for newspapers. She had like her, a column and she did a, a thing for Life Magazine, as I mentioned before. But that was very like, whoa that's radical like that that was very kind of rebellious for a woman to do that for that time because you know women were supposed to stay home and you know be in the cooking and you know women were generally supposed to be housewives it wasn't yet common for women to go out and work or you know or to have you know political opinions she also campaigned politically for um john glenn and you know robert kennedy and stuff so that was very you know, for the for nowadays, it wouldn't be a big deal, but for its time, it was like, whoa, you know, that kind of raised, I wouldn't say it was scandalous because it wasn't, but at the time it was like, wow, you know, she's, you know, she's very different, you yeah. know? So that's something that has to be pointed out is that it was a different world back yeah. then, totally different, you know? Yes. And that's another reason why studying this era and these people is so interesting. Uh, and it's a real shame none of them are, are, are left alive. Uh, but we do have some great books. And one is called We Seven, and it's the newspaper articles. Or, or magazine articles that the astronauts were writing at the time. Uh, they had no idea w- what it was like going to space. Uh, and some of the things they suggest is really quite extraordinary. But um, the book becomes that commentary from the time, which you don't get in retrospective books. So uh, it's one I really enjoy. There is a book, I believe, by NASA History. I forgot who wrote it. I have it somewhere in my house. Um, and I believe it's called This New Ocean. And it's a summary of the Mercury program. It's kind of dry. But if you um, if you are interested in reading about, you know, fact, you know, it, it's not the right stuff. It's not a narr- you know, a, it's not this fun narrative type book, but um, it, it, it covers the Mercury program. And it also, uh, from what I remember, it covers the um, stuff that happened during the program that wasn't great, like the four inch flight. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, stuff that didn't go, you know, that was kind of concerning at the time. So it, it's also I, I would recommend it if you're definitely interested in the history of it. I, I am fascinated by these characters and they romanticize so much. Maybe part of it is because of films like The Right Stuff and stuff like that. But getting to know these seven, trying to get to know these seven people, I find fascinating because they're so unique in many ways. And yes, they're, they're flawed individuals, all of them, but they're... They're such icons, and these were people that were put on top of tin cans, on top of missiles. And I know they carried that on within Gemini program as well, essentially. Oh, yeah. There were so many unknowns, and these seven guys, others would have done it as well, but these guys stepped up, and they were the first. And also, unlike their Russian counterparts, these guys did it in public. And I think that's the other thing that makes them fascinating, and why why their names, like... uh, Alan Shepard and John Glenn are perhaps no more than Yuri Gagarin and and Titov. Yeah, the American space program is all was always um, back in the sixties. It was way more open than what the Soviets were doing because the Soviets, you know, if, if they had an uncrewed failure, they would just say, "Oh, it's a cosmos," you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And eventually, like a space sleuth would find out about it a few weeks later. They'd figure it out. Like you said, everything was done in public, so that meant. Like the test flights that didn't go well. I mean, we were kind of a laughing stock yeah. for a while, and it all happened in public. And I'm like, that—that that is kind of gutsy if you think about that. Yeah. You know, to kind of 
hang yourself out, you know, the early NASA days, you know, kind of, they kind of hung themselves out there for a lot of criticism and they did get a lot of criticism. So I do find that fascinating that, you know, they did do that kind of under that shadow of, okay, you're being watched constantly. And if you screw up, if something bad happens, you know, it's going to be a very public tragedy, you know? Yeah. These guys were, had guts. Uh, definitely. I, and and I think that's why TV shows like the right stuff and the film are useful in terms of their place in history. Because I think they... Oh, oh, I agree. I think they do address these kind of things. Yes, in a fictional sense. And we come back to that quote. Fact, by the way, a fiction can bring us closer to the truth itself. Because these TV shows make me... They've made, they make me want to know more about these people and find out the truth. So hopefully you've learned something about the origins of NASA and the first seven. Maybe you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll provide plenty of links to our sources and uh, to further reading, as well as the videos, um, all in the podcast description, which should be in your podcast provider. But if not, just check our website. Um, essentially, what we're trying to expose here today is that there's a lot more to it than you often get presented, yeah. even in the good documentaries. Yeah. So, yeah, basically just get stuck in. Oh, yeah. One of the issues with doing a podcast like this is trying to get the balance right between presenting information to those who are new to the subject as well as those who know all about it and doing that in an entertaining way. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky balance because, that you know, you don't want to lose people who don't know much about it, but at the same time, the people who are out there who know a lot about it are going to be like, well, you didn't cover this part. And it's like, uh, if we covered every, like if I, we just did a podcast about the international uh, geophysical year, we'd be here for about eight hours probably. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we, we, we're trying to give you enough and we're putting links in, in, in the description so you can go and l look further reading as and when, uh, or watch the videos as you choose to, if something jumps out, something you want to know more about. And by all means, get in contact with us and to talk more about this stuff as well. If you feel we've missed something, just shout at us because, because we, we'd love the conversation. Absolutely. Um, just be nice. Yes. Just be, be nice. About be nice. It. Be friendly. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, we, we, one of the things we plan on doing as we can is we will do in-depth episodes on each of the individual characters, both of what's going on now. So we'll do an episode on Elon Musk and we'll do an episode on Deke Slayton and we'll do an episode on Bob Gilruth. All these names you hear us saying we'll eventually cover. We're, we're going to be around for a while. We're only yeah. in episode seven. Yeah, so we got time. We'll go into more detail. We will go into more Absolutely. detail. But, but we just have to wait for the right moment to do so. Absolutely. Um, but hopefully you've enjoyed this chat. Yes, it was a lot of fun. Oh, that view is tremendous. So that's all we have time for today. And we hope you enjoyed today's show and that you'll join us for more next week. Thanks again to our Patreons who continue to support the show monthly. You can join in over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. And don't forget, you can get one of our t-shirts or make a don donation over on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. I can't wait to get mine. It's in the post, I promise. It's in the post. And remember, in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>